A group of students push for solar panels on their high school campus. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. The students succeeded in getting a solar array built on the school's gymnasium. We're going to hear from one of the members of the group about what they learned it takes to make solar a reality in Florida. Also, we're waiting for autonomous cars to take over the roads eventually, but what if we told you there's a way to drive your car with your mind? Knowing that this type of car, when you accelerate, it doesn't go slow. <laughs> it goes very fast. I felt that rush. I felt free. We'll meet a young Miamian who recently raced a car, and yeah, he only used his mind. But first, a challenge to a Florida gun law goes to the state Supreme Court. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, the topic of gun regulations is heading back to the Florida Supreme Court this week. There's a challenge to a 2011 law that threatens stiff penalties to city and county officials who try to pass gun-related regulations. That's because no local municipality is allowed to pass more restrictive gun measures than already exist in state law. And that goes back to 1987. So joining us now to discuss this current challenge and who's involved is Jim Saunders, executive editor for the New Service of Florida. Jim, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Who's involved in this in this lawsuit? Well, it was filed after the uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas uh, shooting in uh, 2018. Uh, well, actually, it was a series of cases that have been consolidated. But uh, there's more than 30 cities and counties and dozens of local government officials across the state filed this uh, these these, these uh, cases and uh, uh, ultimately agriculture commissioner uh, Nikki Freed joined it um, but they they filed it because after uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas they were looking for ways to try to um, put some additional restrictions on on guns and and the purchases of guns and um, they were sort of hamstrung by the state law that were two state laws, one of which said they couldn't, you know, regulate the regulation of, of, of firearms is done at the state level. And the second law basically would impose major penalties on the local officials. And so that was, so, that, that was the, in, in 1987 was the law was passed saying that only the state could, could, could make these regulations, right? Exactly. It's what's, what's known in state government as a preemption law basically preempts local governments from, from, you know, taking action on, on gun issues. Um, but the, the case really focuses on the 2011 law, which you alluded to. It threatens very stiff penalties on local officials if they pass things that are potentially uh, in violation of, of what the state has set down as, as gun regulations. And so this, so, this, but, or, this, this already went to the, First District Court of Appeal, and and they they sided with the law, and, and um, they um, you know, they did uphold, uphold the law, and, you know, reject the challenge from the, all the local officials, and um, who then took the case to the Supreme Court, and um, the arguments were on Thursday. It it's drawn a lot of national attention as well. I mean, the NRA has filed a a, a brief on behalf of the. In, in support of the law, 
and uh, groups like Brady and Giffords, you know, some of the gun control groups that are nationally uh, have lined up with, with the cities and counties. So I think there's some pretty high stakes involved in this case. And, you know, obviously the timing is, of this hearing is coincidental, but uh, I mean, the whole nation is looking at gun regulations at this, at this moment. Let's go back to the fines again, because they're challenging the 2011 law, which can penalize local officials. But how, how stiff are those, those fines, those fees, those, those penalties? Well, the, 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 the fines can, can be uh, up to $5,000 on local officials if they, if they violate the law. Um, and, um, you know, one of the key issues in the case is whether local officials have immunity from personally being held liable uh, for the actions they take in their jobs. Um, and they, you know, the city, of, city and county officials say, you know, we can't be held liable, personally liable for, for decisions we make in the, what we think are in the best interest of our constituents and our communities. Um, so that's one of the key issues in this case. The First District Court of Appeal rejected that argument, um, but um, uh, I think we're going to hear a lot about that issue on Thursday. Isn't it also that, that lawmakers or local officials, they could be removed from office? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, that's a potential um, as well. Another thing that I think has a lot of people in local government worried also is that the law allows lawsuits by, if someone is unhappy with one of these regulations passed at the local level, they can file lawsuits against the local governments. Not only can they win damages, but they can win attorney's fees, which could be pretty, you know, pretty heavy in these cases. So it, the law is multifaceted. The 2011 law is multifaceted in terms of these penalties that, that local governments and the individual officials can face. I've, I've been trying to find it. I can't, you know, this idea of personal fines for lawmakers who go against state law. Uh, it, that's not standard. I mean, is, there, is this the only law or state that has anything like this? really sure uh, whether there's anything else in state law that would would um, would do that but I think it's pretty clear that it would be it's unusual uh, to say the least um, okay and I think I know just I've been told that Florida was the first other states have been following uh, have been following us on that um, in so we had the 87 and the 2011 law then in 2021, the legislature voted to strengthen those penalty provisions even more, adding that policies about gun control don't have to be written down for a local official to get personally fined or removed. They could be, quote, unwritten policies, which are not defined anywhere. And I'm just wondering, you know, has that ambiguity affected local politicians? It seems like it would be a chilling effect. Well, that's that's one of the main arguments to the local officials are making is that this is all chilling uh, because, you know, there, there may be some things that local governments can do to put some restrictions on uh, guns uh, or gun purchases sort of around the edges. I mean, they can't, I think they pretty much know they can't go out and ban, you know, AR-15s. But there may be some other things that they may be able to do uh, that are not outside of state law. Are, 
or that are outside of state law. And um, but they say they're they're chilled from even discussing it because of, uh, again, you know, the 2011 law, but then the, the legislature kind of doubled down in 2021, as you alluded to. So, you know, they're saying, well, we, you know, we can't even discuss this stuff without uh, potentially running into to penalties and, and getting in trouble. And um, so that is one of the, uh, one of the key issues in the, in, in the whole case is whether this violates their, you know, speech rights even because of, uh, you know, just, just, Putting a putting that chilling effect on them, um, so you know there's um, you know after after Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, uh, you know some some local governments looked at issues like um, you know trying to trying to um, you know put some procedures or some documentation in place to make sure that there's compliance with background checks. Yeah, I want um, those sorts of th- those sorts of things, which which might not be precluded by state law but they say they're afraid to do it because of the you know what happens if they're wrong let me yeah and i'm going to come back to that in a second but just a, just a reminder again i'm talking with jim saunders executive editor for the news service of florida and we're talking about again the 2011 law that penalizes local lawmakers if they propose or try to enforce any gun regulations uh that are stricter than the law that was set in 1987 in other words the state has the power Uh, These penalties will go before the Florida Supreme Court this week. And if you're interested in more of the history behind Florida's relationship to gun policy, there's an episode of the WLRN news podcast, Tallahassee Takeover, that does that. You can find that on our social media at WLRN Sundial. So, Jim, let's go to that. Let's go back to the Parkland because this, uh, you know, that was the last big mass shooting here in South Florida. And there were a lot of people, there's a lot of outcry for changing of laws besides what some of the students did when they went to Tallahassee, but there were locals saying, Hey, can't we do something? And part of it, there was a conversation about, well, what about the, you know, background checks and the waiting periods, but nothing happened with that. What go into that again, real quickly about what, what people were asking for. Well, there's, you know, it's issues like being able to, for local governments to be able to require, um, documentation or some sort of procedures to, to ensure that, uh, you know, background checks or waiting periods are being complied with. Um, you know, those were a couple of the issues that were discussed. In fact, they're laid out in some of the court documents that that was, that that was discussed at the time. Um, you know, and uh, there's also an issue about re- reporting of failed background checks. Now, now these are not the, they, they wouldn't be imposing additional requirements like additional background checks or additional um, waiting periods. But it's more, again, sort of around the edges of those issues, if you will, um, in terms of, of reporting issues or documentation issues, which, you know, could in some ways help uh, to ensure that, that, that the laws are being complied with. And, you know, I think also, and you folks in South Florida know, this far more firsthand than I do, you know, after Parkland, there was just a whole lot of urgency to do something, you know, to try to help solve the, the, you know, to try to make sure this never happens again. And so I have a feeling a a lot of issues, a lot of ideas like that were tossed out to try to, um, you know, say, Hey, what can we do? 
And and I think there was a surprise by some people when law local lawmakers did nothing because they knew that there would be penalties if they tried. Right. I mean, that's 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 their argument. And, you know, I would think after a while, this has not been hap- didn't happen in Florida with the latest um, mass shootings in Texas and New York. And, you know, local governments may want to look at it again. I mean, it's, uh, you know, obviously it's probably well, it is one of the biggest issues in the country right now in terms of, of what can be done to stop this kind of thing from happening again. So besides, you know, it's. Besides Parkland, I mean, we had Pulse, then Parkland. Uh, since 2011, actually, let me let me phrase it this way. Have we seen any local uh, restrictions trying to be passed anywhere? I am not aware of any or of any of great consequence. Um, but, uh, I mean, that doesn't mean that they haven't occurred. But um, uh, I've looked at this legis- uh, litigation fairly closely, and I'm, I'm not aware of anything uh in those cases, you know, in the case uh, that, that, you know, says that anybody's been able to do a whole lot of, of, uh, you know, local ordinances or, or anything to, to try to address these issues. Um, when you think about, again, that the fact that the, the court is going to be looking at this this week, you consider that we've now had a series of mass shootings across the country in recent months and multiple mass shootings across the country this past weekend. How do you think that's going to play out in the court? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, the Supreme Court is very conservative. Florida Supreme Court is very conservative now. Um, it's gone through a transformation in the last three years, three and a half years, uh, from being a relatively liberal to a very conservative court. Um, so I don't know whether the current um you know, pressures that are out there because of, you know, the, the, this series of mass shootings will affect them at all. Um, it, you know, the first district court of appeal, which also is a very conservative court, um, sided with the state in this case. Um, of course, that happened a while ago. It happened before this, this latest series of, of, uh, of shootings. But uh, the Florida Supreme Court just on a you know, basic level is very conservative. Uh, Also, it'll be months before the Supreme, probably months before the Supreme Court issues a ruling on this case. Um, That's just the way the process goes. Yeah. And after after every shooting, we we hear the cry out, you know, for, for action to be taken. And we've heard the president even call out for restrictions on certain types of guns. But The hearing, again, uh, begins this week, and as you said, it could take months, a story that we're definitely going to keep an eye on. Jim, I always appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me. Again, Jim Saunders, executive editor for the News Service of Florida. And you can keep following that story on our website, WLRN.org. Well, still to come, a high school in South Florida just installed a big solar array, and it all started with a group of students. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. When Daniel Stanchoff was in eighth grade, he had a big idea. He and his brother and a group of friends wanted to see how they could get their school to rely on more clean energy. They wanted solar panels, and that ask took longer than expected, but they did it. 
After years of working with Ransom Everglades School to see how they could go through the installation process, the students succeeded. More than 300 solar panels were recently turned on, actually 305. It was on the school's gymnasium roof. Daniel Stanchoff is a rising senior at Ransom Everglades. He joins us now. Daniel, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you, Lewis. Pleasure to meet you. It's such a pleasure, and this is so. This is a really cool story. I got to ask you though what what was the moment like when you saw the solar panels get turned on and they started chime? They started just creating that energy. It, it, we were definitely overjoyed. We the school was actually super helpful. They they actually let us um, go into the the power room and physically flip the the switch to turn them on. So it was it was a great experience. Eighth grade. That's when you had the idea. Yeah. What? Okay. How did it start? What was the conversation like? Take us back to the first moment. So it was, you know, around like spring of, of 2019, I want to say. And uh, my family had just installed an array at, at our house. And our partners, the Monroes, had also recently installed an array at their house. And a teacher on the middle school campus uh, um, kind of installed like a small demonstration array. And so, you know, we thought it was it was time to, to just make Ransom a, a solar school and and implement solar panels on the upper school campus. So it was what you, your brother and it was two friends, right? Two classmates. Yeah. yeah. How did your parents react when you told them, hey, we want to do this thing? Uh, they were. They, they they definitely thought it was it was a crazy idea, but they were they were all for it and they supported us the entire way. What did you think the process was going to be like? Realistically, now, what did you you know like when you presented it to the school and to to leaders? Uh, you know, like what did you think it was going to be like? And if they were, did you think they would accept it? Um. Well, I I knew I I I always had a feeling that they would accept it, but that they would just think that it was too big for for us as students to handle and um you know it, it ended up being a very very big process as you mentioned it took around three four years to get done um but but we did it when you pitched the idea to the, i know well, you had to take it to the school boards uh the school's board of trustees right right so when you pitched it to them what was that like uh it was it was we were all we were all very nervous when we were pitching it to them, but it ended up resulting in a unanimous resolution uh, that all future buildings built on campus uh, will have solar panels on them. Now, did they? I mean, that in that first pitch, they said yes. Yeah, and it was actually in the first pitch they they said yes. Okay, they were yeah they were very supportive. And then, what was the process like? Why did it take so long? Um, it took so long because there were there were many obstacles like we we initially wanted to put the solar panels on the gym roof and then there was a new building the stem building being built on campus and the administration kind of redirected us to build it on that on the stem roof instead of the gym roof and then it turned out that there were problems with the roof warranty on the stem building so we were redirected once again to go back to the gym and um, then there were also some obstacles uh, dealing with FPL. Like they were, they were pretty slow to turn on the the system, and so we had to call in a couple favors. 
<laughs> I love that. You had to call in a couple of favors. What did what did you learn though about the process, especially when you're dealing with big big groups like FPL? Right. Uh, well, I mean, we're all kind of masters um, in in diplomacy and and um, solar panels just in general now. Um, but but yeah, we just we just learned how to reach out, communicate, and and also fundraising was also a big part of it too so we learned we learned a lot about fundraising and how to just reach out and communicate to people in general mm. i'm talking with daniel stanchoff he's a, a rising senior at ransom everglades high school and we're talking about this really cool project that he started when he was in eighth grade and it's finally come to fruition they put solar panels up on the roof of their school it's on the gymnasium and you can check out more about this on our social media. It's at WLRN Sundial. Um, the other thing, too, by the way, and I, I know when we do these stories about solar installation, one of the challenges, of course, is the cost. It's the upfront cost. Right. And so, yeah, how did what did you have to work around to do that? How many how many fundraisers? Right. So, well, just to take you through the whole story about it, um, we we reached out to four solar providers and ended up um landing on golden solar just because they were very helpful they're they're based in coconut grove which is where ransom everglades is located and um darren golden the ceo of the company his mom actually went to ransom so we thought it was it was a great so it was a great story and um so then we landed on him he gave us a quote and um we started fundraising uh the after we met with the board um, they were extremely helpful. They helped us reach out to uh, many, many families who all pitched in. And since the timing worked out perfectly well, and it was kind of middle to the end of the of the school year, um, we actually got um, two hundred thousand dollars worth of donations um, in about three three to four months. Mm, wow. So now this is set up, it's going, it's, it's generating power. How much energy does 305 solar panels on top of the gym roof actually generate? Right. So uh, the expected energy production of the entire array is 160,036 kilowatt hours per year. And just to, to translate that in economic and then uh, environmental terms, um, that's as if we would save the school around somewhere around $20,000 per year. And environmentally, that's like planting 60,000 trees annually. Mm. And you can see, by the way, you could see in real time how this is, you know, how that energy right. is, is coming in, right? Yeah, right. Uh, I, I can't see it right now because it's, it's raining, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but but yes, I, I do have an app that, that shows me when, when it's sunny out and whatnot. What does it feel like to look at that information when you can in real time and know that you help make this possible? It's it's awesome. It's it's really really just I'm overjoyed. I pull up the app all the time just to check on the system and see how it's doing. Um, and yeah, it's 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 a really cool thing. Now again, you're going through it took you basically your almost your entire high school career. It did it to did. get to this point. I mean, did you you know? Did you get to be a high school student, though, and enjoy high school? Because this isn't something that the average student is doing. Like, 
You know, the average yeah. student is doing extracurricular activities, trying to get into college, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have this on top of all that. But did it get in the way? Did you get to enjoy your time? No, I, I definitely got to enjoy my time. I mean, one of the reasons that the entire process took so long is because we were we weren't working on it religiously, you know, seven days a week. We would work on it on work on the project maybe four or five times a month. So around once a week. I've seen people who have tried desperately, and this is not not on a, a you know a scale like this, but just to try to set up solar. And sometimes it drives people to just want to give up. Did you ever feel at any point like, man, this is taking too long or this is too much? Let's just stop. Um, you know, I I did feel like the pro the the project was a little too big for us to to handle at some points. Um, but then you know we as a group, we started leaning on each other for, for support. And also the administration was extremely helpful and supportive. And my parents as well, like I mentioned, were very supportive with the entire process. So I always felt like I had people to, to lean on and, and we kind of all pushed through together and, and finally got it done. I want to come back to what you said earlier. And this is, I think the cool part of the project is that going forward now, any new construction on the campus, right. Has to have solar. Right. Right. And, and there was actually a, a large donation made honest. It was, it was a couple of days ago, I believe of seven, seven and a half million dollars, um, for a new building on campus. And, um, I got an email a couple of days ago from the board of trustees saying that they were going to put solar panels on that building. Mm. What uh, have you picked a school? You know what you're going to do after this. You're you're graduating soon. Yeah, I'm I'm graduating in about a year. I still haven't set, sent in uh, any applications yet. Okay. And I haven't settled on on a school yet, but but we'll see. Do you know what you'd like to study? Do you have an idea? Um, I mean, after this entire project, I'm I'm very interested in uh environment and the in the environment and and kind of solving that that climate change issue that's looming over us um but yeah yeah and i wonder too like you know throughout this process and you know this is a hot topic here in especially in south florida you know as, as we're worried about sea level rise and the climate crisis you know how often you run into people who they're not convinced about solar i just wonder if you've ever had those conversations and and then you know you get into it and tell them hey let me tell you why it's a good thing I mean, yeah, yeah, of course. I, I always, people, people ask me, you know, well, what's the point? And, you know, for, for a lot of people, you have to just give them the, the economic savings and, and tell them, you know, if you, if you install solar panels at your house, you're going to save this much money per year um, in the electricity bill. And for other people, you can just tell them the envi environmental reasons. You know, if you plant, if, if you um, implement solar panels on, at your house, that's as if you were planting X amount of trees per year. Yeah. What do we do, though? I'm going to put you on the spot here for a second, Daniel. What do we do, though, to make it more affordable? Solar's still expensive. And right. We, you know, trying to help a lot of people get it, though, that's a challenge. What do you think? What can we do? Um, I mean, honestly, for us, that the one thing that really made it helpful and, and affordable for us was finding the right um, provider. Golden Solar practically did the entire um, the entire project at cost, and uh, they were extremely helpful, very responsive. So, I mean, 
honestly, I, I really believe that um, finding the, the, the right provider can, can reduce the cost. When you look back on all this, you know, and the legacy that you and your brother and your, your two classmates have left for the school, what, what do you think about most? Um, honestly, I'm just, I'm, I'm just excited to have the panels on the roof. Um, the legacy is obviously a great thing. Whenever I, if, once I graduate, I can always, you know, return and, and see the, the legacy on the, the gym roof that, that my brother and my classmates left for the, for the school. Mm. Did you get to, by the way, at least go up there and put your initials on them? <laughs> no. You know, we, we, we wanted to go up there, but the, the school didn't, didn't want to let us up. I hope they at least put your name on them. You yeah, know, yeah. The, the four of you should have your name on that project, you know, right, at, at least right. going forward. Well, Daniel, it's such a pleasure. I appreciate it. And congratulations on this. This is uh, a really big story. I think something that, you know, gets people talking and it's something that we have to talk about in this community. And, and, you know, I know that you, you still got a little bit of time before you graduate, but, you know, congratulations on everything that you've achieved so far and, and looking forward to seeing what you're going to do in the future. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lewis. I really appreciate it. Again, Daniel Stanchoff sharing his story. This is, a, again, a fascinating story. You can find it on our website, on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Again, this group of students, uh, you know, at, at Ransom Everglades, Coming up with an idea it took them three years to get it going, but they finally got it. 305 solar panels, the 305, of course, on the gymnasium roof, now creating energy. And moving forward, all new construction on the campus has to use solar. Congratulations to Daniel and his classmates on that. And by the way, listen, we want to hear stories like that because we know these things are happening all over South Florida. And the best way to, to reach us and tell us about these stories is our text club. Just text the word JOIN to 786-677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. Well, still to come, imagine sitting in a car that can go over 200 miles per hour, driving that car, but only using your mind. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. Driving a car with your mind sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, but I'm telling you, it's real. German Aldana Zuniga thought he would never get the chance to drive after a car accident in his teen years left him paralyzed in his arms and legs. But all of that changed on a racetrack recently. He finally got the chance to drive, and not just any car, he got into a race car, and he drove it with his mind. This experiment was achieved in partnership with Fauci Adaptive Motorsports and the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis out of the University of Miami. WLRN's Danny Rivero spoke with German, who is a computer programming student at Miami-Dade College. Also with Dr. Jonathan Jagged, a professor of clinical neurological surgery who's on the team that made it possible. German, when you were in the race car speeding around the track, did you feel a, a rush? Um, and, and, you know, one of the reasons I want to ask you that is because your accident happened when you were 16 and I understand that was before yeah. you were actually able to drive yourself. So yeah, you were driving yeah, and think... you were driving a race car. Like, how did that feel yeah. like? Well, amazing. Like, uh, I never had my license, driver's license before my accident, you know, and I come and I see this race car 
looking intimidating. Also, the when they turn it on, you know, the noise. And knowing that this type of car, when you accelerate, it doesn't go slow. <laughs> it goes very fast. But uh, I felt that rush that I felt free once I was there. And the whole team, thanks to them, they all made me feel comfortable, safe. Uh, the safety driver I was there was a really nice guy. So after the first lap, I felt that rush and freedom. I didn't feel nothing. Just It felt good. I just wanted to do more and more laps. And it felt amazing. Like something I never expected. It was the best day of my life, I could say that, driving that car. And Dr. Jagged, um, this incredible experience that, that German was just telling us about, it was achieved with a brain implant that you played a role in, in developing. Can can you explain that technology for those of us who are not brain surgeons about how exactly something like this works? Right. So um, let me just start by saying that there's a there's a, a many different ways um, that this uh, can be done. And what what this device is essentially is a strip of electrodes that sit on the surface of German's brain in an area of the brain that allows him to control movement. And so that strip is connected to a what looks like a pacemaker that's implanted in his chest. So everything here is entirely internalized within German. And what German has learned to do is he's learned to think about moving his upper extremity, although he, he can't necessarily do that. He thinks about it. And those contacts on the surface of the brain are able to interpret that thought and send that information to this generator that sits in his chest. That information's offloaded onto a laptop and that laptop does a series of algorithms to determine whether the signal's appropriate or inappropriate. And if the signal's appropriate, it will then trigger movement. And so that's what this was originally designed to do to allow him to move his, his upper extremity, his hand. Um, but now with this, uh, Fauci adaptive auto racing, we were able to take that same signal and allow him to control a car much in the same way. Can you tell us a bit about why a race car is a good vehicle for this project? And I think in terms of like, this is something very different from hitting a light switch or moving something from, from on to off because I mean, driving a, a car, any car is accelerating, braking, hitting the right angle for your turn, straightening the wheel after a turn. I mean, it's a very complex process. Right. So we're, you know, and, and that's a very good point. Um, we're at the beginning phases of, of this, right? So, you know, German, you know, has to, would have to explain to you what he was actually doing, but, you know, he wasn't controlling every aspect of the automobile. He was controlling, I believe, primarily the acceleration and deceleration of the automobile with this device, thinking about that. Um, you're right. It's, you know, driving a car is a lot more complex than that. And this device was originally, like I said, designed not to be used in a car, but rather to be used for a German to be able to, you know, use his upper extremity um, to improve his quality of life in the home setting, right? To be able to do things that he was unable to do due to a spinal cord injury it was only sort of adapted for the use in this car 
as an experimental thing, right? And, and it just shows how versatile these devices are, right? In other words, he can actually, by thinking about the same things, change the output of the device to perform many different things. Uh, he can probably ultimately control a wheelchair. He can ultimately control things around his house that he might not otherwise be able to do. So that's, that, that automobile experience is just an example of what these things can do. Mm -hmm. You know, the ability to grasp things, you know, the ability to be able to, you know, and by, by grasping things, you can imagine being able to eat on his own, being able to write on his own, things that, you know, otherwise weren't easily done. Wow. And German, can you tell us a, a, a bit about what exactly you were doing? Or what, like, how, how did that mechanically play out when you were sitting and driving the, the race car? Like, So in the race car, uh, all I had to sit there and be focused on like uh, thinking about grasping. Uh, when I thought about that, the car would accelerate. And when I thought about like uh, relaxing or uh, the car would keep a certain speed. And then if I thought about like uh, letting go of some, like letting go, it, it would uh, slow down the speed. So I also had on a helmet. So the helmet worked out as uh, it had some sensors. The way I was able to turn the car was with the helmet. So I had to slowly turn my head side to side while also thinking about accelerating, uh, decelerating. So it was a lot of things at the same time that I had to do. So I had to be uh, really focused. You're driving a race car and you're possibly going to be able to regain movement of your hands with this technology. Is, is, is this yeah, something you ever thought would be possible? No, at least. Not at this moment. You know, I always had hope there's going to be something out there to help me regain mobility. But, like, to be able to drive an ass car, not even a regular car, start out with one of the fastest cars there, is amazing. I never would have expected that. And also this technology helping me to grab things and write is uh, something that has been incredible seeing it work like from just hearing about it to trying to imagine it to actually doing it it's totally different it's so uh, incredible and if I, get, if, and I, if I just add in one thing you know german's a very humble a very humble individual i mean i think you know the audience should realize that you know what he did was undergo brain surgery to have a device implanted and you know this took many years for him to you know he's worked very hard to be able to interact with this device in a relatively seamless way you know months and months years of training to be able to activate this device as consistently as he's able to by simply now thinking but realize you know this was very foreign to him in the beginning and it took a lot of, you know, a lot of work over a long period of time to be able to interact with this device in the way he's able to. I'm speaking with Dr. Jonathan Jagged. He's a professor of clinical neurological surgery with the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis, which is part of the University of Miami. And I'm also joined by German Aldana Zuniga, a computer programming student at Miami-Dade College. German suffered a spinal cord injury in a car crash in his teens. And that led to his diagnosis as a quadriplegic. 
but now he's driving a race car with his mind. You can find more about this story on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Jeremy, were there any moments that were particularly hard in, in the training that you had to figure out? Or, I mean, because it's a tricky thing to, to even talk about because we're talking about your thoughts. Did you find yourself at any moment learning that you had to think about something in a different way that would bring the response that you were hoping to get? Um, yes, we had to do a lot of trials. It was pretty tricky. Like You see your hand and you want it to move, but it doesn't. So you have to do a lot of visualize it pretty much like try to think that you're opening it visualize it and hope that the way you're thinking is like a normal way even though you don't see it hmm. it's uh yeah it's it's very tricky it is a tricky thing to, to talk about what kept you motivated through all this because you said it was it, it was very tricky and, and really difficult at sometimes. Well, I was motivated because, uh, you know, I'm positive that it was going to work out, that uh, we're going to use use it for the hands. You know, thinking about the future, like, now it's for the upper body, then it's for the lower body. And I know that a lot of people could benefit from this, so there was no quitting, you know. Uh, I've always been like that. Uh from when my accident happened, uh, I had to remain positive and have faith that no matter how bad it looked, that if you give it your best, uh, things could work out for you. And doctor, I want to ask you a similar question. What, what were some of the most difficult parts of this project for you and what kept you motivated through those difficulties? Well, I have to tell you that I think one of the most difficult things with something like this, believe it or not, is finding someone as motivated as German. Um, you know, remember, you know, what I said earlier, I mean, this, this to, to implant this device, you know, you need, you, you take the risks of brain surgery, right? So in other words, finding someone who's willing to do that for, you know, not only himself, but as you heard German say, for the everybody suffering with these type of injuries, you know, being the person who allows us to, you know, take a, a novel device, implant it, uh, have him dedicate his time and effort, uh, as he mentioned to you on a weekly basis, daily basis for hours to learn how to interact with this device. Um, that, that truly is the biggest hurdle. Now, you know, we didn't just go and meet German and, and, you know, say, Hey, we're going to implant this device. You know, this took also, which he hasn't mentioned, took, months and months in a lab prior to even having this implanted to ensure that we could, you know, make this happen, right? So that when we took the step forward to do the actual brain surgery, that we minimize the chances of failure. He spent hours and hours in a lab even prior to the surgery doing very similar things so that we could prove to ourselves that the areas of the brain, right, that are required um, to function appropriately were indeed functioning appropriately. Remember, he had a spinal cord injury, I want to say, four or five years before this event. Who's to say that the areas, even in the brain, even though the injury is at the level of the cord, spinal cord, who's to say that the areas in the brain that we take for granted when we initiate a movement were working appropriately? So we had to go through a ton of, of pre-surgical um, stuff to ensure that we minimize failure. In addition, he had all kinds of 
um, functional imaging done, right? So that we could prove to ourselves that he could just think about moving his hand and light up the areas of the brain that are necessary, right, to capture these signals. So it, a lot of lot of work went into this, and his dedication, you know, is incredible. Right, and and Dr. Jagged, um, I mean, what what you were just touching on there speaks to the potential application of this for more people. What are the implications of this kind of research if it reaches a, a broader audience? Like, I would tell you that, you know, truly the sky is the limit here. I mean, in other words, um, you know, this, you know, number one, I should mention that as I did earlier, there's many different, uh, there's, there's a few different devices out there, um, ex experimental devices. There's nothing commercially available as of now. Um, this particular device, and I think what makes it amazingly unique compared to the other devices out there is that many of the other devices that people are using can only really be used within a lab setting. Okay. So, you know, you've got patients undergoing brain surgery, they get devices implanted and they can go into a laboratory with all these desktop computers and they can do different things, control robotic arms, you know, control many different things. What's unique about this device is that, you know, German is able to use this device in a meaningful way outside of the lab setting. So he's able to take this device into his home. He's able to, we've designed all type of things, all type of uh, things to interact with this device, such as apps on an, on an iPhone so that he can control things, 3D printed prosthetics that work with this so that he can do the common things that we take for granted around the house that he was unable to do before. Um, this is sort of a like you know holistic approach to, you know, it's really along the lines of Miami Project what what they strive for. We're we're not just doing something in a lab. We're trying to create stuff that improves the quality of life right now for people who have spinal cord injuries. And I think German can attest to the fact that it has changed his quality of life in a meaningful way. And that's very different from a lot of the other devices that are on the market, where again you're sitting in a lab. Right. And German, I, I do want to hear more of that um, in, in, in a moment. But but doctor, I mean, this is really remarkable stuff that we're talking about here. What are the what are the next steps for this technology and in, in, in trying to, to bring it to more people potentially? Right. So th there's many next steps. Um, what he has right now allows us to capture very few signals from the brain. And there are various ways to overcome that hurdle, which we're working on so that we can get many different signals to allow him to do many more things. Um, that's one way to proceed forward. Another way is the actual hardware, redesigning things so that you have more contacts sitting on the surface of the brain to capture a wider array of signals, unique signals, which then allow you to do more unique things. Um, but the future, again, is it's endless what you can do with these devices. It's a matter of just improving the technology and improving the algorithms that interpret these these signals um, to, to produce all different types of movement, um, restore function. Um, so again, it, it's limitless what can be done. And German, you know, you've already have some experience with this kind of technology. How do you hope that that this kind of thing will impact other people living with disabilities at large, like on a, on a larger scale? Yeah, so uh, that was uh, the goal was for me. My goal was to put this implant and, you know, give him my best uh, and reach whatever goal there is, you know. So the goal is to 
cure paralysis to walk one day. I knew it was the first one, so it was going to have to be patient and uh, work hard. And what I want is for other people with disabilities not to lose hope, you know, to continue to go to school, graduate, work, and for them to um, get something like this on earlier to recover even faster, to gain mobility more faster, and I have to wait so long. And again, you just heard from German Aldana Zuniga, a computer programming student at Miami-Dade College. Also, Dr. Jonathan Jagged, a professor of clinical neurological surgery. He's with the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis uh, as part of the University of Miami. They were speaking with WLRN reporter Danny Rivero. You can find more of the story on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Truly fascinating. See, it's not science fiction. We have arrived at that place already. Well, that is Sundial for this Monday, June 6, 2022. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovalle is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. WLRN's interim program director and technical supervisors, Peter J. Meritz. Engineering our board operations today, Richard Ives. And don't forget the theme music uh, for this program is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. If you missed any of the program, don't don't fret. You can always catch it tonight and rebroadcast at 8 or download a podcast of this program. Just search WLRN Sundial. By the way, if you do it that way, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps, and we appreciate it. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we're going to speak with one of the leaders of Radio Poder, Radio Poder. It's an immigrant radio station in Homestead, and it broadcasts in indigenous languages. By the way, I hope that you're reading our Sundial Book Club pick for June, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Cuba, an American History by Ada Ferrer. It explores the island's history from its indigenous population to its relationship with the U.S. today and how all of that has culminated into Cuba's identity. Again, the, the book is called Cuba, an American History. Join our book club. Just go to Facebook, look up Sundial Book Club, ask to join. It's free. Love to have you. Want to know what you're reading? Also tell us what you think of the book. We're going to be talking with Ada a little bit later on this month. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.